Welcome back to Potter's Pockets, episode 20, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, chapters 16, Professor Trelawney's Prediction, 17, Cat, Rat, and Dog, and 18, Mooney, Wormtail, Padfit, and Prompt. Before we get too far into this, it is Halloween, and here are my spooktacular colleagues, my esteemed, uh, I suppose we would be, we would all be ghost teachers uh, today, uh, Miss Sarah Miller and Mr. Wesley Shantz, welcome back, you two. Hey, good to be back. Good to be back. Yeah, did you guys um, trick or treat? Did you go or did you hand out candy? I handed out candy at school and then also um, at my parents' house. Um, I handed out a lot of candy, a lot of good costumes out there, a lot of Harry Potter costumes. Yeah. I, I once dressed up as Harry Potter, or maybe twice. I don't know um, if I did much more than just, like, say, I'm Harry Potter. But it seemed to work, you know? You do um, look like him, so I, I can see that. I've gotten that before. Yeah. So this, um, I've, I've, I've definitely been, like, a hybrid Hermione, uh, Jenny. It's such an easy costume. <laughs> yeah. This, uh... This section gives you a lot of good costume ideas too. I feel like this um this whole this whole conclusion to this book is kind of about disguises in a way, right? Um Oh yeah. When we get we get this kind of amazing revelation uh as well in the in the midst of it. But what I found kind of interesting about it is how like what struck me reading it this time was how set Harry, uh, Hermione, Ron—they are against like believing what they're hearing at this point. Yes, um, it's it's like it. No matter how many different ways they try to tell them that they need to listen, they are are completely like adamant that they know what's right, and they're not gonna get um, sort of hoodwinked by these these charlatans. But so, like, what do you do about that, right? Like. How do you, how do you reveal uh, the truth to someone who's not in a position to to hear it yet? Like, I I I sort of thought that part of the answer must be the Expelliarmus charm because that gets used a bunch of times as well. Um, but what did you guys think about that? That's interesting. Hmm. Um, well, on just sort of another part of of what you just asked about. Um, disguise. Sorry, sorry. I'm sort of losing it. Uh, I'll just go back to your original question there. Yes. Oh, yeah. No, I was going to say. Um, it's so interesting as a reader in that part because you are so your interest is totally peaked, or my interest was totally peaked, and I mm -hmm. had sort of a dissonance with the the characters at that moment. Their refusal to listen and my utter desire to hear what yeah. what the truth was. Um, and so I experienced like a real forceful urge to make them listen. I wish they would just listen. And so I was taken from the position, I feel like, of the students to uh, the, the position of the teacher or the feel. I was given the feeling of the teacher who's just trying to convey what he knows and it's so important and it will be the truth and it will, it will, it will ease some suffering for you or, or allow you to see something of utmost value if you would just listen. Um, and that's what I felt, like you were saying. Um, and uh, so I, I don't have anything on this yet, but I do think that the wand is a symbol for the intellect and the expelliarmus is the disarming of somebody else's mental defenses so that they will be receptive to uh, listening. It's a, as if, if you have your two wands out, you are dueling, you are debating, you are not receptive to the information being conveyed by your opponent. You're simply attempting to block and combat it. Um, and so I see, and it is interesting that the expelling, like who has the power in the situation continually changes, right? right. It, it's like the kids, then it's Sirius Black who subtract them, then it's the kids again, then it's um, Lupin, then it's Snape, then it's the kids again. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, so there is a major shifting in perspective occurring in this scene 
in a way that I think is sort of unheard of in any other scene we've seen so far, I mean, or at least none comes to mind. So I guess I had more to say on that than I thought. What do you think? <laughs> I was just going to say that, um, yes, Lupin disarms them, but then he gives them back their wands and yes. says, you know, it, it, it's almost as though, um, like to your point, and I know you've made this multiple times, Alex, I think it's, it's an apt one. If the wand is a symbol for the intellect, it's almost like they, like Lupin is a real teacher here and he disarms them by like giving them a break from their wand, but almost allows them to restart. Because I, I too experienced, I think the way you articulated it was exactly what I did experience was that I wanted to know and they were dead set again. Uh, and I think that's, the evidence there, or like, or like the, the, the craft there is like a total absence of dramatic irony, right? Um, like, we are just as in the dark as they are. And so it's interesting that they don't want to know, um, or they don't want to stop and listen. Though, if I'm quite frank, like if I were 13 or 14, and in their situation, I too would not want to stop and listen. Like there's something, <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? Like, like it, it makes sense to me that in that particular scene or in that moment in a life, I can see where they would have that posture. But as a reader, um, we almost have the book gives us the freedom or perhaps the safety, the security uh, to have the opposite level of curiosity versus defensiveness. I also want to say that I think, you know, something we brought up at our in our last pod was um, like the immaturity um, of, and, and we saw that with Harry and Ron's inability to give up the firebolt, um, you know, immaturity of Harry's decision to deceive Ron and sneak away to Hogsmeade and then try and lie and be, you know, um, a salty teen in front of a teacher. Maybe their um, kind of irrationality in this entire scene, um, beginning with cheating the rules and going down to Hagrid's all the way through um, their kind of disbelief at what's happening in the Shrieking Shack. Maybe that's a reflection of their childishness. Um, And, you know, um, because I think kids do react that way. Like when, when what what Lupin is doing is is just fundamentally changing an assumption uh, that they've had all along, right? And it's not an assumption that they made on their own. It's an assumption based on information that they received from a legitimate authority. That's right. Right. That serious, right? So it's not like that. Almost makes it less childish and more simply childlike that. Um, they received this information. Sirius Black is a bad dude. He killed your parents, right? Um, and I think for them to be faced with a situation where that is totally flipped on its head, I mean, there are, I can't think of a 14-year-old that would comfortably accept that. I think there are a lot of adults, by the way, yeah. who would have a hard time accepting this thing that they've consumed and believed to be true from a, from a proper authority for a really long time is not right. Would be you know, that it, that's freaky. Mm-hmm. It'd be a, extremely emotionally dysregulating. And I think there is something to be said there for the Daily Prophet getting it wrong because of what we'll see later on in the series. I mean, I think they, J.K. Rowling <laughs> sort of nails it when it comes to umbrage and sort of, sort of over-regulating educational policy until the real teaching is regulated out of existence, as well as sort of, you know, hitting the newspapers as a source of truth in these days. It's like, it says what appeared to be true, but there is a deeper truth that uh, we must seek forth. And I, I think it's really interestingly connected to Lupin's didactic method. Even in this extremely dangerous and terrible situation, he's playing the role of a teacher. He says, you know, he, he's like educating Hermione, right? He's like, quite so. You really are the quickest witch of your age. He, he says in a teacherly voice, right? And so he, he's even now still playing the teacher to these, these students who are, uh, you know, what is it they have to doubt now? 
uh, Harry, his motivations for much of what he's done all year, his opinion of Lupin, who he's grown to really love, uh, potentially even his opinion of his father, because what is happening here? And, um, uh, and, and you know, the Daily Prophet and the sort, you know, a major source of truth. Like, that's a lot to have to question all at once. It's like, how much do you have to question based on that then? Um, it, you wouldn't even know. So I, I agree that it, it would not be an easy, <laughs> it would require a major transformation of character to, um, to uh, ingest all that information all at once. And I think that's connected to the idea of an animagus. Huh. Ooh, can you so, say more? So, yeah, what's that, what's that last bit about the, because we were talking about this a while ago about how the animagus is kind of like, expressing some um, animal nature or, or something, right? Like, uh, yeah. and contrasting it with, maybe contrasting it with the werewolf and some other things, I forget now. But so how, in what way is the, does the animagus play into that, um, that, that deceitfulness or that, uh, like finding out the truth through some, some kind of, underhanded purpose or, or what what were you saying about that some underlying deeper narrative that's not apparent and that is unspoken sort of um but um so i just made this connection between the fact that james is an animagus and harry is a parcel talk right because both are taking on a feature of an animal and um so there's there's something about cunning or wisdom and Harry's ability to be a parcel tongue. We do find out that Sirius and James were the cleverest students and also the funniest. They really sound like, you know, I sort of wish there were stories about them, but maybe they, they were really mean because of their talent. But in any case, they, they sort of harness this animal potential. They become animals, which is A, very dangerous, we find out. B, very difficult. Only seven animagi in the entire century. So it is an extraordinary wizarding accomplishment. It only took these kids three years out of love for their friend. And so I think it says something about the transformative power of love um, for one's character. Um, but also that um, what's interesting is that even though you devolve into an animal, it is a highly sophisticated magical ability in which you remain or retain your mind. And in fact, they, they help Lupin to retain his, uh, his mind when they're around too. And I, I, was, <laughs> I was always, I was wondering whether you know, it, it's interesting that, well, I didn't know whether there was an inconsistency because he said that he didn't bite them when they were animals because he only wanted humans, but he will fight against Sirius later. Um, mm. But I guess he doesn't bite him even then, so maybe not an inconsistency. But I think that the idea of the fact that they transform out of love into this um, irrational but rational creature, or this bestial creature, is connected to transformation of character and the, and the changing of perspective. But I, I'm, not, I'm not all the way there yet. That's uh. cool. Yeah, I was thinking about it in terms of the way that they, they get some kind of good thing, like you're describing, like the friendship, that time together that they otherwise wouldn't have. And they get out, they get the truth about their friend, like he's tried to hide where he goes every month. Mm. Um, but they, they find out and they sort of like, uh, each of them brings out something of their character through their transformation too, right? Like in some yeah. sense, Peter is a rat yes. and uh, Sirius is like a doggy and James is a, a cool stag. Um, and so, yeah, I think there's lots of ways in which what I'm trying to say, I guess, is that the disguise um, reveals something about them. Like, I, I don't know exactly how to say much more about it than that, but the way in which those disguises um are are also sort of like they they don't mean just one thing right because in the sense that they're um they're symbols that have lots of possible meanings like the rat is a, is an easy one to try to pin down to mean like you know he's a traitor he's a scoundrel but that's obviously not the way that Ron sees his pet rat you know he loves that rat so much that he will just like absolutely deny anyone trying to tell him that that's anyone but scabbers you know he's like really quite sure that it's scabbers and this is when ron's like you know sitting there with a broken leg and probably um feeling really lousy 
but he's still trying to stand up for his pet rat. It's like that, that was one of the most amazing things about this scene when I realized like how much pain Ron is in and yet still so resolute <laughs> in, this, uh, in, his, in his certainty about this. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I found it really interesting that at the very end of what we read for today that we, we get the invisibility cloak there again. And that's a different kind of disguise, right? That's like truly um, concealing because you're not there at all. Um, and so I'm really except, curious. Go, go ahead, yeah. Oh, no, I was going to say, except to the map, right? The map sees it all. Like, oh, right, yeah. All of those, yeah. all of those disguises, including the Animagus disguise and the invisibility cloak, they are, the map, it, um, is through or or knows more I don't know how um, but I, there's got to be a symbol in there right yeah well oh, yeah. I, I think there's something to be said for the fact that it's a marauder's map like it's a thief's map uh, suggesting the idea that you s sort of steal information or like like Bilbo going into Smaug's cavern you face the threat or the darkness mm. and the thief moves in the darkness to get the jewels right and just like the hero faces the dragon in the darkness to get the light or the shining gold or maiden and so there's there's there, there's scholarship that suggests that like odysseus as a character was a transition in ancient history between the idea of the thief or hermes as a representative god to athena and sort of the hero as representative and so those those ideas are very closely connected so so it would make sense that these heroes were thieves and were cunning and were churlish and that this marauder's map it's like it's as if suggesting that an honest person <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not sure an honest person transformed from a thief has a full perspective and so cannot be fooled or something like that mm -hmm. and, which might explain how lupin sort of understands what's up most of the time um, Mm -hmm. I do want to think about what character is revealed by each of these transformations, though. That's such an interesting idea that piqued my interest. Um, yeah, I mean, Wes, I like your idea about the um, there's their characters revealed in disguise. I I I know there's there's got to be something Halloween related to that. That like the costumes that we choose. Mm. reveal more about ourselves i mean certainly in like a in like the school world you know the the masks the social masks the mm. kids choose to wear always reveal a lot more about the kids insecurities and their maybe uh, their sense of self their weaknesses and strengths they're like their their metaphoric masks the character they choose to play they always mm. are much more revelatory than they are um, protective or um, deceptive, actually. So, <laughs> you, know, you know what I'm saying? That like, yeah. I, I don't know if I'm making any sense, but I, I've heard that bounced around in, in a, a variety of different places and programs within schools that, you know, who we pretend to be, the pretense is actually uh, kind of, a way a window into who we are uh, and I think that's something that like I certainly have experienced in acting right that like mm. um, there is a sense in which uh, and this is why like method acting can be so dangerous um, but when you take on another character uh, in the in the context of a play for example um, there is there are stories of people really digging into another character and discovering or finding themselves in it and then finding more about themselves after leaving that character behind right so it seems sort of like a cross-disciplinary maybe I don't know norm not norm norm's the wrong word but like a conclusion or an observation that that masks reveal more than they conceal um, oh. but I don't know I don't know what it is that that they do reveal these ones I don't know. And, yeah, in this particular case, I mean, the main thing it seems to be is that the the kind of um, camaraderie between the, the kids, right? Like that they would go to such lengths to to don this particular kind of disguise, which is, you know, 
truly transformative, uh, dangerous, powerful, requires a lot of care to, um, to learn and, and cleverness and all of that. And so it's like, that's the main thing I would take away from it is like their decision to try to do it in the first place. But then like in terms of each one of them, what it might say about them, I think the, the first one is um, serious, right? Like we've seen throughout that the, the dog symbolizes death, right? The great black dog that you see before you're about to die. Um, and that makes a lot of sense. He's like been in a really dark place. He's um, been convicted of killing all these other people. He's, as we learn later about him, right? He comes from this long line of uh, dark wizards and, and whatnot. So, so there's a lot to that side of it. But the other side of the dog is like the loyalty, right? Like he's yes. the, most, the most faithful throughout all of this and through mm. his being dragged through the mud, right? Like he has remained uh, true. I would have died, he will soon say, rather than betray my friends. And I, mm -hmm. I think, you know, I think that's an interesting difference between him and Pettigrew because I do think the rat nails it with him. And I think part of what that reveals is just James and Sirius' utter faith in their friends. I mean, there's something beautiful and sort of ethereal about them that like the degree to which they trusted Peter to make him the oath keeper, even though he's a, he turns into a rat. And even though McGonagall, when she's describing him in the Leaky Cauldron as, you know, foolish boy, he never had any talent for wand uh, uh, wielding. I mean, he's just so clearly sort of a dunce and he turns into a rat. And it's just clear that he's not, you know, he's not the most exceptional individual in any particular way, and including moral. And, but his friends believe in mm. him so much that it's like they want to will him to their level, but they mm. can't. Ultimately, he falls. He fails. Because Sirius trusted him enough. Sirius, the most loyal friend in existence, trusted Peter enough. He, because he, he thought of him as another self. And I think that's the beautiful thing we're seeing there. That even like Neville or even like Pettigrew can be perceived as another self, a friend to even the two cleverest and best uh, like wizards of their year. And, you know, Sirius coming from this, this ex Malfoy like family uh, could totally turn up his nose at this guy. And he was very handsome too. And then James was this gifted Quidditch cup winner. Mm -hmm. I mean, and they're hanging out with Pettigrew like that. And then trusting him with their lives. That's, that's just a faith and friendship that, well, you know, when we get to it and we hear Sirius yell that, I mean, I think we're going to experience some pretty serious emotion at Pettigrew's expense because it's looking pretty Luciferian, what he pulls. Um, do you, what do we think about the stag then? Like, I, I was wondering, yeah. Well, he's, uh, I, I, yeah. He's, he's noble, right? He's, um, he has a crown. Yeah, exactly. He sort of stands out and above. And, uh, I thought the word ethereal was a good one for it too. Um, but he's also the thing that's hunted, right, for yeah. that great nobility and that beauty, mm. um, that otherworldliness. Right. You know, that, that makes him have the target on his back. And, uh, you know, he gets brought down. So, so sure enough. And that he, is, that like is a, what happens. Yeah, that's right? great. Voldemort does seek him out. And, I mean, it's entirely unclear. It's not explained why Voldemort goes after him and his kid. I mean, it's sort of, you know, it's in the long line of heroes with um, with um, births uh, beset by dangers, like Moses, Jesus, Heracles. You know, there were two serpents that came after Heracles. There was um, you know, an edict out for first sons during Jesus, and Moses gets put in the water. And there, there's some, Peterson makes a claim, there are like 500 heroes, if you look on Wikipedia, who are orphans as well. And so it's just yeah. sort of, well, yeah. Well, and we'll find, we'll find out why exactly Voldemort targeted James and Lily and James and Lily's child. Oh, yeah. And also that you will find out that at the end of book five from the Department of Mysteries. But also, like, we will also know and discover that um, James was descendant of the Peveril. Um, like, from, and also from Godric Gryffindor, I think. Um, so there's something... Maybe, maybe, maybe James didn't even know that, but he was kind of like a prince around school. 
I guess, I mean, switching gears, do you think, I guess I, I, I understand that we've, we've talked about the three kids, Harry, Ron, and Hermione, as kind of kid-like, as child-like, as maybe less dimensional. But is it possible that this discussion of deception and masks, is it possible that, that they also have, like, metaphoric masks? I, I'm only thinking that, you know, Harry, for all of his, I mean, he's the protagonist after all, but like he's pretty close to killing Sirius Black and Crookshanks <laughs> and like justifying it to himself. Like, well, if I have to kill the cat, the cat is innocent, but you know, but, uh, and Hermione, we've seen Hermione, maybe that mask of perfect student cracks a little bit in, uh, in the chapters where she <clears throat> struggles with, Professor Trelawney, to say the least, or when she skips class and nap. I mean, I, I guess um, I wonder if they if they have sort of the kind of mask that kids tend to have, which is like a character that they play while they learn to navigate the social world. They, you know, the behaviors that they try on, um, the the personas they try to inhabit to try and figure out where they where they fit on the social hierarchy of things. Um, I don't know. There's evidence for that, I think, in the fact that Hermione, when she just studs it up and takes care of business and shows what she is capable <laughs> of. Because when Harry's, she just looks up, where's your invisibility cloak? Okay, goes 30 minutes later, has it, bang, that's Hermione. That's why you need her back on the team. She gets things done. She's not just book smart there's no such thing <laughs> book smart by the way it all revolves into iq and you can see that in her mind right she's not just the best at reading she's the best at everything except for quidditch she mm -hmm. you know she's a very powerful dueler she can produce the best charms i mean she's best at, and she just gets things done she's very efficient she's showing what she's about here and she totally upsets ron's idea of her right he's like whoa you know she'd been she punched malfoy she did this. She laid into uh, um, Professor Trelawney. Yeah. So even if, if she's not consciously portraying a persona or a mask, certainly our perception of her has to deepen. You know, just like we were saying at the beginning with the gift that she gave to Harry, which uh, his perception was that she would give him something studious, but she gave him something that, you know, his broom kit that he would love, hmm. showing that she understood him. It's like she's showing more dimensions to her character, which I think also sort of makes us feel a little bit more ashamed of Harry and Ron, that they've been so callous towards her for so long and they didn't help her at all with her, um, with the case with Hagrid, where her values were just spot on. And they, and they, as friends, have not had enough care for her to even figure out that she's been using this, this magical time device. Um, she hasn't been able to be totally honest with them. So I, I think there's a, I think there's something there. I mean, some major amount there about their masks and what they're revealing to each other and what is manifesting in themselves. That, you know, it's almost as if they are a mystery to themselves and to each other as well. Yeah, that, the thought that the kids in some way unconsciously put on these personae seems right to me and and something about the the transition that's happening around this point in the series right is like death is a real thing right like uh as far as they're concerned at least the hippogriff died and they can't believe it but it mm -hmm. did and like they've been told all through the book like you're gonna die harry you're gonna die and so there's a transition i think that's happening here where they're like maybe becoming a little more conscious of these roles that they've put on and like assumed about themselves and about, you know, in, in Harry's case about his parents, like what kinds of, what kind of person his dad really was. Um, obviously they've gotten serious uh, black completely wrong, right? Along with everyone else in the wizarding world. Um, and, and so those personae start to kind of crumble or at least like you can see the cracks. And I think maybe the last one that you'll ever get to see it through is, um, is Dumbledore's, right? Like it takes six books for the cracks to appear, but then once they're there, you can't miss it, right? So, so yeah, I think they're, they're becoming aware of it uh, in little ways and 
the 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 thing about Hermione that caught me this time was how she struggled with Lupin's um, final exam, right? With yes. the bogger. Uh, yeah. She can't she can't realize right away that it's taken the form of McGonagall. She thinks that it's real that she failed everything. Um, and yeah, it's very moving, like how how much stress Hermione's been under the whole book. Again, I'm like blown away by how tough Ron is at this part to be like wrecked and yet still like helping like hold Harry back and like fighting for him and fighting for his pet rat, you know, like um and Harry, <laughs> yeah, Harry um as as angry as as enraged, you know, as he is, he doesn't you know, I think a lot of that is like rationalizing to himself that he's able to do this um, to kill Sirius Black, but he just can't like, he can't do it, right? And and that's to his credit. Um, and yeah. it makes him it makes him more like Sirius Black and more like his father, right? Who who intervenes to stop the cruel joke being played on Snape, right? So in a way, he's like without realizing it, he's, he's true to his, his actual, you know, unmasked self there, um, as tough as he's trying to be in that moment. Oh, I like that, that, that almost as though at some point, like this crucible of what they're experiencing in the Shrieking Shack, all of the stuff sort of falls away, and like, Ron can be brave and tough, and Hermione can be quick, and um, smart and resourceful and devoted to her friends and more than just a, a bookworm she's active and her and Harry can be like noble of heart like his father I, I love that idea that I think like sometimes it's trials or um, surprises or um, maybe surprising trials or surprising moments of adversity where um, you know, everything else falls away. Everything else that seems important, be it rank or appearance um, or social dynamics that are preserved for some other external reason that, you know, when push comes to shove, they can be their best version of their, themselves, which is interesting because it did sound like in the very same place, what, 30 years ago, um, uh, in some ways, they, um Lupin was not the best version of himself, but his friends, by becoming animals, um, uh, showed him friendship in a way that maybe that it, they couldn't have otherwise done. You know, it, it all happens in the same place. Well, it's like um, they made themselves into the best versions of themselves by showing that compassion for their friend and thus raised him up and made him more conscious too, right? Because right. he's a less dangerous werewolf with them around. It's like, it's the ideal of friendship. It's interesting. It makes me feel when we're talking about these four, uh, the sort of conspicuous absence of the fourth in this trio, mm -hmm. sort of the Neville character that never really gets spelled and is sort of replaced by Luna in later books. Um, but that they don't have that fourth. Um, and I, I just was wondering what you thought about that. Like, where is, Dobby? where is, yeah, or Dobby, yeah, at times. Hagrid, Hagrid at times. Yeah, 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 sort of a rotating, yeah, maybe that's what it is. What do you <laughs> yeah, what do y'all think? Well, I was, I was so curious about um, uh, Crookshanks also. Yes. Like, mm. what, what's going on with Crookshanks is, because, you know, Peter yeah. is the rat. Um, like, there's, there's something behind the disguise there. But in Crookshank's case, is this just a cat that's like really, really affectionate towards uh, Sirius? Like, is that is that it? I, I guess I don't know. Well, I don't know. I think it's sort of representative in a way of Hermione. I know that eventually her Patronus or Patrona, I guess, will be an otter. But like, she's she's highly moral and in an affectionate and caring sense, right? Like when she yells, thinking herself betrayed by Lupin, I covered for you. The whole year, of course, I figured out what you were. And he's like, you are so smart. You are the cleverest witch of your year. She cares and she's smart. And there's, there's a connection there, I think, because Crookshanks, against all appearances, is not just a stupid cat. He is the cleverest cat we hear, like Hermione. 
and, yeah. uh, and against appearances, he's actually, because we've only seen from Ron's perspective, both Hermione and this cat lately, that, um, that he's like this cruel stalking cat uh, that wants to kill his rat. But in reality, he's this very kind, intelligent, um, perceptive cat that seems to know the difference between the right sort of person, regardless of public opinion, and the wrong sort of person or creature, regardless of public opinion. And so I think he's sort of indicative of a level of animal insight or, or, and correctness of moral sense based on that, that is perhaps symbolic of Hermione as well. Um, I, I just, I want to throw something out that's yeah. sort of like what, I don't know if this is what you were saying and I just missed it, but um, uh, that's sort of like a parallel to um, Hermione and the firebolt, right? That um, yes, exactly, yes. And then, and then, so if you then take, if Crookshanks, I think one of you used this word in a previous pod that like they were the the like these animals are their familiar. Um, is that something from the Golden Compass or maybe from like Macbeth? But that they they contain like a reflection of or a piece of the of the owner then like that makes me think about what we later learn about Hedwig um, and how that is tied to um, how Harry uh, kind of behaves and performs and sees the world. And the same thing about, about Ron and Scabbers, you know, mm -hmm. are, is there a point at which he becomes treacherous? Is there a point at which he um, chooses his own good over the good of another? I'm thinking with like Lavender Brown or, mm -hmm. um, uh, running away. Um, I don't, I don't know that that's a perfect argument or a perfect, or if the parallel can be drawn for all three of them, but you're right. I do think she has a lot in common with Crookshanks. Um, and yeah, the way that Crookshanks is hated is kind of like the way Hermione is, is reviled by these boys for doing something that was, by the way, the right thing and the smart thing. And it turns out absolutely the safest thing to do. Yeah, and that, that sort of prefigures, and then we can switch to the next one, and because I think we have 10 seconds left, I think sort of Harry's sort of being reviled in the fourth book, and Hermione's sort of standing by his side, perhaps because she knows what it's like. All right, send him yeah. in. And we're back. Okay, uh, so to that point about the um, about the fourth character, then because um, we get kind of it's suggested like pretty strongly in, even in the titles of these chapters, right? Cat, rat, and dog, and then Mooney, Wormtail, Hadfoot, and Prongs. Um, so maybe we're even supposed to be sort of thinking about like so how do these characters relate to their um, animals? How do the four friends, uh, the Marauders, um, relate to this generation's uh, trio, right? And with with Neville's case, from early, early on, he's associated with his pet uh, Toad, right? Like, um, it's lost there for a little bit. Yeah, Trevor. And he's like, at the <laughs> as they're uh, about to cross over to, uh, on the boats, right, for the first time to Hogwarts, he like finds Trevor again. I think Hagrid finds it or something. Yeah, so so there's this kind of like motif from very early that associates him with um, this animal, which is neither, you know, one thing nor the other exactly, but that sort of like crosses over from the water to the land um, that starts out kind of like fish-like and becomes, um, you know, transforms at a certain point. And I feel like that's definitely Neville, you know? He's, he's kind of squishy, he's kind of amorphous, uh, but he's <laughs> super adaptable and super, um, like, yeah, just flexible. Um, and and I think it's super interesting, too, that he is a kind of stand-in for Harry Potter himself in a lot of ways. And that might help to explain, I don't know how far to go with this, but, like, what James Potter and Sirius Black saw in Peter Pettigrew right? Like this, this alter ego, as I think you said earlier, Alex, right? The other eye that they could see, even though they're different in so many superficial ways, they could see something that's like deeply the same about them somehow. Um, and 
we find out later that in Neville's case, uh, it's that he too could have been the boy who lived, right? He he too could have been the mm-hmm. one spoken of in this uh, this mysterious prophecy. Yeah. Hmm. I, I mean, I think that's great and um, very interesting. But and do, so, do you think that he's not included with the bunch because? Well, uh, is he? I don't know. Is he like a failed version of Harry Potter that doesn't even get friends because of this? Does he have a group of friends? Um, like, I, I'm sort of under the impression. I wonder whether this is true. Whether is it five men, boys, and five girls per year per house, making it forty per year and two hundred eighty total students at Hogwarts? Because I, as a child, I thought it must have been more, but that does sort of sound right. And if so, you know, it's just like Seamus, Dean, Thomas, Neville, Ron, and Harry. Those are like the boys of the year. And they should all be like really, really close. And so is, is like Neville off with Seamus and Dean? Or does he just end up by himself? I, I, don't, I don't know. Like it's, we, we, he like, just like we only really get to see Gryffindor, we only really get to see the compatriots of Harry. So it's like, it's a big blank about him for me. But yeah. we do learn a lot more about him and his tragic past. Yeah. Yeah, at this point, he is sort of just, in that way, the kind of um, foil for Harry Potter, right? Like, he's the one who's uh, left out, whereas Harry is, you know, active in all these different ways. Um, but I, I just think, you know, even in that respect, he serves as a really interesting character to think about, like, because there's so many kids like that, right? Like, especially mm-hmm. as a teacher, you, you sort of have to notice them and like take them into account. Like the kids who uh, don't stand out for any obvious talents, but yet who, you know, have funny little, like th- there's little things about them that you start to notice uh, and that you can kind of like connect the, with them about, um, you know, corresponding to Trevor the Toad or something like that. Right? <laughs> Uh, or or his love, I mean, or his love and his aptitude for herbology, right? Like, oh, yeah, yeah. I have a, you know, I have a ton of students who, like, maybe don't fit the traditional mold, but who are exceptional artists or programmers or gamers or, um, you know, designers or any of that. Like, yeah, there's tons of Nevilles out there. I don't know that the four, like, the trio of four from like one generation prior needs to be duplicated in this tree or like sorry not trio of four god what am I saying <laughs> um, I don't know that the group of four needs to necessarily have four to be mm. uh reflected to have their qualities be reflective um or reflected in the trio either um mm. because because I do think that one thing that we see over the course of particularly the next few books is just how much wider the circle gets their social circle grows right like um there's luna and then there's neville and then there's uh fred and george and Ginny, and um and i'm thinking specifically like when the dumbledore's army thing comes around like cho chang and other yeah other houses get involved yeah they really do expand out you're right yeah and I, i i guess i don't think it's just five and five um, I think there are more. I just don't think that we get their names. I don't know. I, yeah. I'm sort of, I'm just thinking of like the number of people in Dumbledore, Dumbledore's army seems like more than the number of five, 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 and five or whatever. But um, yeah, I, I guess I'm not, pers- I'm not convinced that, that there have to be four in the modern kind of 1990s group in order for them to um and you know and and in some ways aren't they all like each of the three of them aren't um you know they they sort of encapsulate different qualities of each of the four at some point um Mm -hmm. you know that and that's something that we could we could see or perhaps talk about but um yeah i'm 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 particularly curious kind of about the story that lupin tells um 
I I think it's like, yeah, I mean, like, uh, uh, the, um, I mean, oh, I'm sorry, I maybe I'm getting ahead um, with the story of how, how the whole bomb worked off worked out that, i did yeah. read ahead my bad that, that is uh um, yeah that's right for next time but that does remind me of a question i want to ask for next time before i see uh I, because i want to really ask about professor trelawney's actual prediction again working oh, yeah. against our oh. expectations about her and a person who seems to be all mass and shows some substance finally mm -hmm. even upsetting not only hermione's but i don't think we talked about mcgonagall going after her at christmas dinner like <laughs> very unmechanical, like, I mean, she is, of course, you know, she, she does speak her mind, and she is very clear and articulate and can be uh, critical, but dang, she's really very open about her disdain for this colleague. I would have thought that you would have seen that, Sybil, uh, uh, she says to her, um, but, um, <laughs> uh, but yes, I am really eager to see in what way the current three who get to redo time in the next episode, how they are sort of maybe revising the mistakes of the past generation or even of themselves. And I think there will be connection also between that idea and Harry and his father's Patronus and his uh, misinterpreting from whom the Patronus comes at first or, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. But what did y'all think about Trelawney actually spitting out a real, a real prophecy? And then as, as we know from Sarah saying, the Department of Mysteries will be full of Trelawney's uh, real predictions, but what about that? I I like the idea, like thinking about it in terms of disguises. Like her whole, yeah, her whole thing is a persona that she's put on, and yet underneath it, unbeknownst to even McGonagall, right? Like who should know better? Um, there's this this undercurrent, this vein of truth that that flows through her uh, when you least expect it. It gets its own font, which is super cool. Yes. Um, it's like there's a lot of all caps going on in these chapters because people are shouting at each other and very, you know, agitated for various reasons. But like her all caps is somehow like small and like contained. And she speaks and it's to reflect, right, this like strange voice that sort of speaks through her. Um, it's really creepy. I think like of all the spooky Halloween things we could talk about. That's maybe the spookiest one. Uh, and the way that she doesn't even know after it happens that it has happened. Uh, so it takes a it takes a listener for there to be a prophecy in a way. Uh, that's pretty creepy. Yeah, and some creepy about the voice, the all caps and yet small. There's there's a tension there. Yeah. Right? There's a captivating element. That's why it's in all caps. You're supposed to focus attentively on it. This is very important. And yet it's small, so it requires attentive focus. So it's as if she's saying in a very sincere and low voice, like sort of how a teacher will express like the most important information right at the drop of a lecture. Like, mm. like and this students listen very closely to. This is the real information. It doesn't require shouting. It doesn't need emotion. This is truth. And you better listen closely because it is meaningful. And what's interesting is that the truth is a riddle. It requires uh, a mind to interpret truth. Like you're saying, a listener needs to be there and the listener can't be a dog or a cow or an unthinking credin. I think the listener has to be sort of Oedipal in that he, he must uh, discover the riddle of the Sphinx or the, the Sybil from the Apollonian. And, you know, she is named for the Sybil of uh, Apollo at Cumae from Virgil's Aeneid, who is also called Sybil, who leads Virgil, or excuse me, Aeneas into hell in book six and shows him where the golden bow is. And so, you know, she leads one towards truth, but you have to figure it out yourself. She gives you the puzzle, sort of, I guess you would say. And that, I think that is a comment on truth, how it grasps your attention, but at first... Your, your reach exceeds your grasp, and you have to work it out for yourself. Um, that what is at first mask is unmasked by you, by you illuminating it with your wand or with your mind. It's really cool to me also that the person who does get this revelation is not like one of her fan club you know, members that she sort of uh, acquires over the course of the year. 
um, by all that sort of, um, you know, hocus stuff. pocus. Yeah, exactly. That's that that other stuff uh, draws people to her, and you know, they sort of like pal around and stuff. But when it when push comes to shove, it's to the person who needs to hear the information, not who like aspires after it and fancies it even. Um, but but the one who like it matters uh, deeply to. That's who's going to take the uh, the prophecy, and I find that really interesting because, in a way, um, it's uh, it's contrasted or paralleled by um, the the note from Hagrid on the next page, right? Which like also stands out, uh, and you can mm -hmm. sort of like see what he must have been going through at that moment. He was sort of you know also maybe out of his mind in a way, right? Um, but yet conveying some information to somebody. Uh, I, I think that there's like so much stuff that starts to go on here um, that the reader also gets a little bit maybe bewildered, right? Trying to like focus on like what, what is really important here. Because the, um, the abrupt like attack of this dog right out of nowhere so like how do you how do you keep track of all of the information how do you sift out what is really important how do you know whether it's um in in joke or in seriousness and i think the that's part of also like why in the next section we have to like go back in time to like actually see what happened and that's to me that's kind of like rereading in a way too right like you go back and you try to figure out like, wait, what, what was just said? Like, did I really just read that? So, yeah, I don't know. I think there's a lot of really cool stuff going on with this um, that, that does grab your attention, but you can only put your attention on so many things at a time. Uh, I definitely get, like, get really scattered if there's too much uh, uh, to, like, try to figure out at one time. Yeah, and that's interesting because with the rereading point it's almost as if and i've just been reading pride and prejudice which is so interesting because it's as if the first half of the book is when the action takes place and then the sort of reflection on the action or what was actually happening during that action unfolds over time in the second half yeah are and so it reminds me of dante's purgatorio where you work and suffer during the day but then you reflect on what you're doing at night it's sort of a full life or a full reading involves the activity and the reflection that those are those form one full whole mm. when it comes to life that you not only need to do the things but then you need to look back and understand the things because there's so much happening at all times that you need to revisit what has happened and you need to also revisit what has happened with a with a, uh, a more sophisticated and more mature perspective because there's so much from your life that you interpreted when you were young right? When you didn't have executive function, when you were less conscious than you are now. And if you were to revisit those moments, you would see much more there. Sort of like I take it how we are with this book. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm getting way more out of rereading it, especially um, as like I'm listening to you guys talk, I'm like flipping through for, you know, for more evidence or, oh, yeah, I did make a note of that, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but it's helping maybe make a, make a constellation of various stars, um, yeah. that you identify them, but you can't quite get an impression of what they, of what they're pointing at. I think that sort of relates to something we were talking about at the beginning, which is the, like the disarming, um, like Lupin's interruption and <laughs> the, what Expelliarmus really does to them, which is like pause and, and stop. And then he, he hands them back their wands and forces them to listen. Um, and it's not the same as reflecting on what they've done because he's giving them new information. Um, by the way, just because this is like my thing, um, that is totally the Ignatian pedagogical paradigm. Um, like this, this, the, 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 this pedagogical concept that um, comes from among many other places, I'm sure it's not it's not unique to Jesuit schools, but articulated within the exercises and the the text surrounding it um, is this paradigm of action 
um, or experience uh, reflection and action. Um, and just sort of like this, this reoccurring thing, like you experience something, you reflect on it, and then it, you let it change you, you um, and so that you can experience new things. Um, um, yeah. Anyway, Lup I, I would say that Lupin would be great at a Jesuit school. Yeah. <laughs> I, and I would say that's exactly what Dante does in the Paradiso with Beatrice. Exactly. He, he learns new information. Oh, yeah. His ideal becomes more beautiful. That enhances his perception of reality. He, you know, he then acquires new information. His ideal becomes more beautiful. His ideal is transforming him as, his, as he is transforming it. There's a feedback loop um, between them. But I was also going to say that just the word expelling on this, very similar to expello or we expel mm -hmm. with the moose ending in um, the first person plural in, the, in Latin. I was wondering about that. And I was like, oh, yeah, there's a Christian connection there to expel legion. Uh, that uh, you know that which keeps one from truth, those demons or those obstacles to understanding that fill one's consciousness and get in one's way, mm -hmm. sort of like the attitudes of the students towards this this teacher have to first be expelled, and that also goes back to the Ciceronian and Quintilian idea of rhetoric and Aristotelian even uh, further back, the idea that you have to get people on your side first. Uh, before they'll listen to you, um, and that um, that you need to clear the air. I guess I guess is a better expression of it. Yeah, I mean, it sort of reminds me a little bit of uh, what Lupin is saying about um, the way that his friends in high or in um, in school chose to spend time with him instead of fighting him. Like, wouldn't the wouldn't the normal reaction to like a kid who's a werewolf be like, oh, separate that kid, segregate him, or if in the event that he was turned, fight against him. Um, but like their choice is to be alongside. So to your, to your point, Alex, about like, how do you persuade people? Well, instead of being combative, sometimes the best thing to do is to like, I don't know, be alongside other people. Um, yeah. yeah, and I, you're, yeah. you're drawing my attention also to the parallel that both Lupin and Pettigrew would have been sort of untouchables or, you know, mm -hmm. not ideal friend material in Draco Malfoy's words. Um, and, and they're sort of uh, juxtaposed very strongly or contrasted with their two very noble friends who come from on high. James literally is, becomes a crowned beast who stands above others, right? And uh, even a dog has a nobility to it because of its loyalty and, you know, his pedigree, too, of course, uh, serious. And so that's very interesting. But I, I have one last question for y'all on this Halloween night. If you were a wizard in the wizarding world, how would you spend Halloween? Mm -hmm. If you could do anything that we know mm -hmm. of that they can do in the wizarding world. And if you want, like, some, some options thrown out there. But I was just wondering that. So now... Now there's a wizarding world. What would you want to do? Oh man, I mean, it would be pretty cool to go hang out with your friends in the Shrieking Shack. I feel like that would be really fun, um, as long as you don't have to uh, break your legs or right, like <laughs> feel like you need to kill someone to to go there. That would be like the quintessential Halloween. I feel like, but but. Even as I say that, I'm remembering the uh, death day party too, which mm. was pretty cool. Mm. So I don't know. It's kind of a toss up. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the Shrieking Shack, Shrek, or no, the Shriek, I'm sorry, I'm tired. <laughs> Where they are um, <laughs> is like a classic haunted house, but I think I'd want to like hike through the Forbidden Forest, maybe. Ooh. Um, uh, I would also want to eat all of the pumpkin pastries available. Mm. Um, and yeah, I, I think um, it sounds like a, at the end of October in England, wherever they are in England, it's like cozy. It's like cold and rainy outside. So it's an opportunity to also be kind of cozy um inside if it's really if it's really rainy and wet like it is here in Seattle but 
um, if I were out in the Forbidden Forest, I'd expect there to be like a campfire where you tell ghost stories. Um, and yeah, there, I think that'd be a good way to spend Halloween. Alex, okay. what do you think? I have, I, I'm cheating. I have four interesting ones just because I think they're interesting. <laughs> but I can rank order them. Um, one, one is uh, I'd really like to go see a really bomb Quidditch match on that time. I'm just so competitive. I think it would be really cool just to see the special effects that they would include and like maybe the halftime show they would do. Two, I would love to go to a costume party, a wizard costume party with all the wizarding like super treats that they would have during Halloween at Hogwarts, seeing what their ceiling could do with bats and starlight and all of that. Um, then I have sort of a weird one, which is if, if it were that time of year or if it were that moment in history, casting a, a spell that could only be cast during Halloween that took some preparation that was something to do with reaping what one sowed. I don't know, some powerful old magic, if such thing exists in this world. And then the fourth would be hanging out of the leaky cauldron with you guys, because that'd be great. And that's essentially what we did anyway. All right. I agree. I, I think hanging out at the leaky cauldron would be also awesome. But now that you mentioned the costume party, I would love to see people like Tonks. Remember how she's... Yeah. Um, she can like change her facial features and her hair color. I think now that you mentioned that, like I would imagine the costumes would be pretty interactive and dimensional. Yeah. And I would put that also on my list of things that I'd like to see. Yeah. So we would put the masks on. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah. Um, Wes, you said that you were Harry Potter for Halloween. I think more than once now that I'm thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. I think. Is there I, any uh, other like thing? I'm I like, maybe not a character, but is there any other thing or figure or something that you would want to be for Halloween? Uh, from, from, books, from Harry Potter, I mean. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I would make a pretty good, um, uh, grim, you know, <laughs> I could uh, scare some people that way. That would be fun. No, I mean, there's there's too many creepy uh, characters from this book that I would, like, do a really good impersonation of. Um, but I was going to say if we, that, we, that we will. We will I was just going to say. Oh, go ahead. Yes. Uh, no, I was just going to say that. Say what you were going to say. Uh, that we're going to, we will in one one way or another, be gathering, uh, what, in the spring? Uh, down there in Seattle? And mm -hmm. uh, maybe have a butter beer and a pumpkin um, cake or something uh, for that, for that um, Norwest Con. That's on the, that's on yeah. the, that's happening. That is no happening. Have we, have we gotten, has an owl come to let us know? Not, not more, not no more information than we already had, which is that we can go and we can talk about things in some form, but we'll be there. Excellent. Well, the less I, I think the three of us should, if we have the opportunity to ever be um, in the same place for Halloween, we should be um, the three like Quidditch pieces. Like someone should be a bludger. Someone should be the golden snitch and someone should be a quaffle. <laughs> I don't know who, but I just think that'd be cool. Um, I like that. I feel idea. like Alex would have to be the bludger. I was thinking <laughs> You'd be the snitch. Yes. Anyway, yes. I don't know. I was, it, it was the thing that, the thing that I was closest to be, to being today, because I have a pair of shoes that are gold. But then I woke up and I was too tired to come up with something else. So, um, anyway, um, what's what's on for next week? Do we want to do the remainder? I mean, I in my, in the British book, that is not that much reading, but I I know it's a lot of pages. No, no, or that's I imagine not. it's a lot of pages. It's just about sixty, it looks like fifty-eight or so. Um, yeah. <laughs> And, How yeah. does that sound, Wes? Yeah, yeah. That seems like the way to go. Okay. 
Well then, we'll be finishing the third book next time on our 21st episode. Rad. Thank you. Ah, growing up, growing up. (laughs) (laughs) Progress forward. And for those of you who really do love fantasy, keep tuning in to Wes's new segment, Game Cool Books. It's getting better and better. And uh, I really see what you love about that series, Wes. Thanks. Yes. Yes, I I would appreciate uh, any comments and questions. I like, you know, have a ton of things to talk about, but I always enjoy hearing other people's ideas on it. So, yeah. Thanks. All right, y'all. Sounds good. All right. Mischief managed. Happy Halloween. Mischief managed.